Happy Memorial Day weekend to those of you who, like myself, do not have a lake house or a good friend that does. I'm just teasing, sort of. Um, Really glad to be here with you, though. That I'm not teasing about. Welcome uh, to those here and those joining us live stream. Really delighted to be together in worship and in God's Word this morning. We will be in 1 Peter 4, continuing on if you want to head that way. And so uh, we're coming, drawing near the end of our series in 1 Peter. We've got three more weeks, so I think it's fair to say we're rounding third and heading home. And uh, we'll have today and uh, next week and then the next. And then we will get into our summer series. And as is our tradition here, we use our summer uh, to engage um, a couple of our elders, our teaching team, and our resident preachers. And we do a preaching cohort. Uh, We think it's great for the life of the body, uh, but it's also really great for our uh, preachers present and those to be, those that God has a calling on their lives, that we can um, really uh, be stewards of the calling and the gifts God's given us. And so we help fine-tune and, uh, and hopefully um, sharpen uh, that craft with one another. And so uh, we'll be blessed as a body to hear from a variety of uh, preachers uh, on our team and future church planners that we look forward to sending out one day this summer. Our study will be on the minor prophets. All right, not everybody at once. Well, I hope for some excitement, some hollering. Uh, how many of y'all studied the minor prophets? Okay, 11. All right, so... <laughs> Maybe that's why there's a lack of excitement. Well, get ready. It's going to be good. We, uh, we drew our prophets the other day, and I got Hosea, so I am really excited. Uh, but they're all great, so um, I can't wait. Hopefully that will give us a great uh, look at a, at, at a part of the Old Testament that uh, oftentimes goes overlooked. And, and sometimes we go, who are those guys again? Uh, and when you meet them in glory, you're going to want another story. So um, you want to be able to at least say, I read your book. So come this summer, and uh, we'll be, uh, that'll be a great series. Also, just want to just add my word of just kind of being still for a moment in light of uh, what Memorial Day means to us. That There are so many men and women who have uh, paid the ultimate sacrifice. They've laid down their life because they have deemed the cause of really what we're gathered for right now. I don't want to lessen it to anything less than that. They have deemed the cause of being able to have the freedom of democracy to come and to gather and have religious freedom to worship together. And uh, they've deemed that worthy of their lives. And many have paid that price that we could freely gather this day. So I want us to have, uh, I know those folks, you do too. I want us to have uh, just a moment where we recognize the sadness of the loss of life, but a deep, uh, overwhelming gratitude at those who have uh, been willing to pay that price um, and uh, lay such a great foundation for us to stand on. Amen? So let's, uh, let's go uh, to our text, and then we will pray and thank God uh, for this time and this text and ask him to use it. So if you could stand to your feet for the reading of God's word, chapter 4 of 1 Peter, verses 1 through 11. This is the very word of God. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of things, end of all things, is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied graces. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God for the people of God. And the people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, we do pause on a holiday weekend. We stand uh, on the sacrifices others have made. Uh, We're reminded of that this day and the freedoms we enjoy in this country, none greater than our freedom to gather in worship. Proclaim your name, the goodness of your grace, and uh, do so um, in an unashamed and uh, in a very uh, safe manner. We're we're grateful 
And yet we know the ultimate sacrifice is that which you paid for us. That for thousands of years now, the saints have stood upon that sacrifice and proclaimed its truth and its good news in places that were not uh, altogether safe. Even in our current context in First Peter where they were being openly persecuted and killed uh, for believing what we believe and claiming what we claim and professing what we profess and confessing what we confess. Let us be mindful, let us be grateful, and let us be unashamed this day, bold in our faith. Speak to us by your word. Let us just sit under it and by the power of your spirit, move through your word to quicken our minds and hearts to truth, to transform us, conform us into the image of Christ, and give us an excitement and an urgency and a humility as we pursue the gospel ministry you've given us. We love you. We praise you. You must increase, Lord Jesus. I must decrease. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the context for where we come in is still the context of 1 Peter, which is um, what does it look like to be a sojourner in an exile? Meaning we're passing through. This ain't home. We're on our way home. We have a heavenly citizenship called by God, saved by grace, being sanctified by that save, save, same saving grace even now. And we must live in light of our eternal home. We must live this life in light of eternal life. We must not play the fool who believes that our kingdom is on this earth. We must not live our life spinning our wheels to, to further our kingdom and our comfort and our security and our will. We must wisely forsake our kingdom and our will for the kingdom of God and the will of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what will that entail? Necessarily, it'll entail suffering. I mean, you can start there. There'll be the uh, having to deny our flesh. Isn't that what Jesus says it is to be a Christian, by the way? To deny yourself. Take up your cross. Minist- uh, uh, it's a ministry of, or an instrument of execution. And follow me. His was a ministry. Christ came to this earth. He forsook the... Uh, the joys of being at the right hand of God temporarily to deny himself, to suffer to the sake of death, even death on a cross, the ultimate humiliation for God in flesh, to glorify the Father and to provide a way of salvation for us. And we are Christ followers. Our very lives, our temporal fleeting lives as sojourners and exiles are to do the same thing, glorify our Father and demonstrate the joy of being saved by which God might, through us, save a people unto himself. That's what we're doing. That's our mission. And so our text is in the context of still suffering well. It was last week. It'll be next week. These last three chapters really uh, hone in on the fact that that's going to be part of your experience. I talked about two weeks ago that part of our uh, suffering and our trials come, come from our foolishness. Uh, we're just, sometimes we're ignorant, and we bring on consequences to our own lives, and, uh, and life is tough when that happens. Sometimes we're sinful. Uh, there's a guarantee you're going to have consequences to your lives and sin. God's promised that. He's a loving father who rebukes us, just like we don't leave our, turn our kids over to their own sinful ways. We chasten them to repentance. God lovingly does the same with us. And sometimes it's simply as a result of the fall of man and that we live in a culture that reviles Christ and rejects the gospel. And we receive Christ and herald the gospel. And there's a clash. And you're going to be misunderstood. You're going to be scoffed. You're going to be mocked. There'll be some measure and some level of persecution. It's been far less in our day than it was in Peter's day. Maybe that's growing right before our eyes. But there'll be some measure for those who are misunderstood and hold out the gospel, the word of truth in a crooked and depraved generation. It'll be true of us just as it was true then. So the theme here. Marching forth as a sojourner or exile, be prepared to suffer. Matter of fact, that's where our text starts, chapter 4, verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. Again, let me be careful to define ourselves not as merely cultural Christians. We don't merely take on a general term of Christian that means churchgoer or something else. I happened to ask, uh, I was talking to a young man this week. I, I made an assumption that he was a Christian, not that that was right or wrong, but I just... I was thinking in my head, uh, and I said, when did you become a believer? And I'm not sure in context why I asked that question, but I did. And he, he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, when did you become a Christ follower? He said, 
you mean like religion? I said, okay, let me back up a couple steps. And, 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 and I kind of reset my mindset. But, but listen, if you just talk in our day about, hey, when did you become a Christian? A lot of people go, oh, born that way. Ah, mom was a Christian. Grandma was a Christian. Been in church all my life. Get that all the time. But you talk about being a Christ follower, somebody might go, boy, what do you mean? You mean like that religion of Christianity? I'll tell you about that. I'm not really sure about the Christ follower. In the New Testament, there is no um, calling to a, uh, a Christian faith apart from a Christ followership. Jesus' invitation was to lay down your life and follow me. Why would we do that? 2 Corinthians 5 says we're compelled by who he is and what he has done for us. He laid his life down for us on the cross. He paid the price for our sin. We don't just have this cognitive understanding that Jesus paid the price that we owed and we move on about our business. No, we're compelled in our heart that he who took our place in judgment deserves our allegiance and that he is doing something, a saving, redemptive work across the nations that is worthy of our lives being laid down for it. And so we're compelled to follow Christ. And Peter says, since Christ suffered, guess what? Yours is a calling to suffer. It's your heritage. You don't follow Christ and not have a life of denying yourself. We can at least start there. Maybe some of us will be maligned more than others, some less than others, but we all should be suffering our flesh. We all should be saying, hey, I'm not merely here to get fat and happy. I'm not merely here to lengthen the comfort and security of my life in the short fleeting days God has given me. I am here to take the resources God's given me to tighten my belt, to figure out how I can suffer that the name of Christ and his gospel might flourish. That's part and parcel to following Christ who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing for you and I. And he took the form of a servant and became obedient to the death, even death on a cross. We follow the one who suffered. And it says, because of that, arm yourselves in, with the same way of thinking. The word for thinking in the flesh is, uh, sorry, in the Greek is actually the word intention. Arm yourself is a battle term. The idea is there's a war going on. You're following one who has suffered for the glory of the Father, for the good and the salvation of the elect. You arm yourself with the same way of thinking. You're willing to do the same thing Christ did. I will likewise intend on suffering that God might be glorified in it, that man might be saved through it, that the purposes of God prevail in my life, through my life, because it ain't about me. This life is for his kingdom and his glory and his dominion forever and ever. Arm yourself. Is the cause of the gospel worthy of your life in the battle that we are in? You got to figure that out. Uh, both of my grandfathers fought in World War II. Both of them, by God's grace, survived uh, that war. One of them was a. They, one was in the Pacific Theater. One was in the European Theater. The one in the Pacific fought, flew B-17s. He was a bomber pilot. Uh, he did not like to talk much about war, but occasionally sitting on the porch at the ranch, we would co converse about it. I talked about uh, why did he enlist willingly, voluntarily, um, on the heels of Pearl Harbor, and he talked to us about it. And he says, you know, I felt that that was a cause that was worthy of my life, which was to say... I counted the cost, didn't go in with some false expectation or, or um, uh, you know, minimizing the risk. No, I said, I could die, sign me up. This, this is worthy of this life. This calls for this life. And he signs the dotted line. He's in. By the way, he was shot down uh, twice. The first time, his entire crew, except for his co-pilot, were killed, a crew of 10. He and one other survived. He had to share that with their families. I said, hey, Pop, why'd you go back? And he said, the loss of my brothers. We all signed the same agreement. We all considered the cause worthy of our lives. When their lives were lost for the very cause I was willing to die for, I didn't feel the need to cut bait and run. I was emboldened 
No way I won't go back. My brothers have died for this. Can I tell you? The cause of the gospel is preeminent. And yes, tens of thousands before us have shed their life blood for it, following the footsteps of Christ. And the death of our brothers and our sisters who counted their lives worth nothing that the gospel might go forth, does it make us cut bait? It emboldens us to follow in the sufferings of Christ. When you come to Jesus, this is where we've really watered down salvation in our culture, it is signing on a line that says the, the, the cause of Christ the cause of the gospel, the cause of salvation by grace through faith and the shed blood and finished work of Jesus Christ is worth my life. So I put a blank check on the table for God. You can fill it out however you want, God. I've counted the cost. I've died to myself. I'm in. So Peter's going to say, welcome to the life of a sojourner. Welcome to the life of an exile. Expect suffering. Expect that wartime mentality means you better be tough. You better expect it to be difficult. And should it cost your life, don't be surprised. And yes, this cause is worth your life. Your life is fleeting. All eternity, you'll celebrate what God does through a life surrendered to him for his glory. Amen? So arm yourself. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I wish this meant you never sinned anymore once you make that commitment. It doesn't mean that. It's not Christian perfection. What it means is the one who's willing to die for Christ is probably willing to live for Christ. You're, what it means to come to Christ is literally a 180. I was, I'm, I'm following my own ways, which are naturally rebellious to the ways of God. I'm living for my kingdom, not his. And because of God's intervening awakening me to the truth. It's like the prodigal son being amidst the pig slop, coming to his senses. At some point or another, that happens in our lives if we're saved, and God saves us. The Spirit illumines us to the truth. We receive by faith the free gift of Christ and salvation. And we do a 180. That's repentance. Repentance has been compromised in today's Christianity. A 180 means I'm not who I used to be. I used to think life was over there. Now I see that's confusion, despair, and death, and loneliness, and isolation, and hell. That's being broken in a relationship with God and man. And I was deeply uh, discouraged. I was never satisfied. Nothing in this world could scratch my itch. And then when Christ saved me, what happened was I didn't just believe something. I was enlivened to something. I was... Um, Restored to right fellowship with God, and my heart came alive. I was born again. Jesus says, Nicodemus, that's what salvation is. You must be born again. And if you're born again, you know it because you think differently. You're different. You're a new creation, and other people know it. I see it in you. They may not understand it, but they know it's true. They know it's not just religion, it's not just a general term. It's a life that you've taken on, the life of Christ. You're in him, he's in you, he's alive in you. And so no longer are you going to um, be able to live in a life of sin. You've turned from that, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh. So every time God gives you, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Um, your desires are now for Christ and his kingdom. It's not a manufactured thing. It's like, I think I'm supposed to do something different now. You've been captivated by the cross and by the gospel. And so you're one who, having turned in your mind, has been turned in your affections. You've laid down this life, and for whatever time I have left, I'm not going to be about Kenan's will anymore. I'm going to be about the Lord's will. I surrender my life for the purposes of God. And it says, for the time that is past suffices. For doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. The time is past. When we become a Christian, when we get saved, when we are born again, we don't simply walk in this uh, uh, direction of rebellion against God, come to a cognitive understanding of Christ, receive him, and continue. 
of a life of rebellion with Christ as co-pilot. That's not salvation according to the, the Bible. According to the Bible, that's incongruent. The one who's truly saved is broken over sin, will turn from sin. Are we totally done with it? I wish. It's a process, sanctification. We'll get there one day when we're glorified in his presence. But you grieve your sin. You're not sinless, but you'll sin a lot less. You don't like it. Don't like that about yourself. You're constantly confessing, repenting. You're clinging to Jesus because he is better. Um, The time has passed. You would say to somebody, the time has passed for living like a pagan, living like someone who was lost. God was gracious with me. He turned the lights on. I don't want to go back to the darkness. At the time, I was searching and scrambling for what might satisfy and fulfill me. And the truth is, I couldn't find it. The lights came on. I found life in Christ. I won't go back. Uh, There's meant to be a congruence in what we believe and how we live. For the single person, sometimes uh, a couple will ask me to marry them. Sometimes I'll sit down with them, don't even know them. They'll begin to tell me their story. They'll share with me their testimony, that they are Christians. They'll give me the date to which they were saved. And then they'll also tell me, or it'll come out in the conversation, that they're living together, even presently, not being married. And what I know, and my my, uh, job is to allow the Holy Spirit to hopefully use our conversation to bring a right quickening and convicting on their heart, what I know is they're living in disobedience to God. And if they're truly saved, they must have a grieved, quenched spirit inside of them, even as we talk. And I get to give them an, an exciting invitation. Hey, uh, you've been awakened to the truth that what you're living in, that sin, that sexual immorality that is despairing because it's an affront to God and it grieves the spirit in you, you don't have to stay there. God's invited you into right relationship with him. That wasn't merely a, a walk of an aisle or a prayer of a prayer. It was an invitation to life. You want to embrace this life, you'll never go back. You'll look back and go, oh, darkness. I don't want to be over there anymore. Thankful for the light of Christ. The time has passed to live in drunkenness and, and orgies and debauchery and passions and their drinking parties. It's, it's over. Praise be to God. There's the illustration of uh, Alexander the Great came to mind this week, story I heard long ago. Um, he was, you know, filled with ego, young man taking the whole world empire in his early 30s, and um, a 17-year-old Macedonian soldier was brought before him as a criminal act because this kid fled from battle. And Alexander um, rebuked him, let him know that in this army you don't retreat, that the cause is worth your life, and you go forward. And um, he looked at the kid, and he was somewhat uh, compassionate for him, and he said, do you understand? The kid said, yes, and he said, what's your name? And the kid kind of stammered out, uh, 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 Alexander. And Alexander the Great said, I'm sorry? And he said, Alexander. And Alexander the Great got off his horse, and he walks right up to him eye to eye and puts his finger on his chest, and he said, son, tell me your name again. And the 17-year-old boy said, my name is Alexander. And Alexander the Great said, well, you'd better change your name or change your character. Um, Can I tell you lovingly that it seems to me that, that Jesus wants to have such a talk with many of those who claim his name in the church today? Just a real moment of, hey, what is your name? Christian. Tell me me that again? Christian. And then he would come face to face, gently but boldly. And for a third time, just like Peter, three times, tell me your name. My name is Christian. You'd better change your name or change the way you act. We're called to leave a life of debauchery behind. And because of the joy of being in Christ, that's our greatest privilege and desire. I want to leave that behind. I want more of Jesus.
Now you got to watch out for the enemy. You got to watch out for the distraction. You got to watch out for worldliness and greed in the flesh. But there's nothing I want more than to leave here and go here. Well, here's what happens when you do. With respect to this, they, that's those who are participating in such a life, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So folks aren't going to understand what has happened to you if they've not been converted your life will make no sense to them. They might see you. One of my high school buddies that I met with recently called me a do-gooder. He said, I'm glad we got do-gooders like you, Kenan. That, that's all, that's, he just can't make any sense in my life. He just feels like I just really want to, you know, I'm just a guy who is really eaten up with doing good. Um, I remember when, a, when, a real, when there was a real defining moment in my life, when I, I'll be honest with you, uh, Christ was merciful from my childhood all the way up and, um, and never left me, even though there were many times I wandered in forsaking him. I was a uh, people pleaser, still struggle with that. But uh, boy, in high school, God had been good. I had received him. I was saved. Uh, I even had a, just a baby walk with him. But I was so afraid of what everybody thought of me that I made a lot of poor decisions, a lot of immoral and bad decisions that I knew were wrong, grieved in the spirit, but I just couldn't own up to the fact that I was going to stand for Christ amidst peers that wouldn't understand that and would malign that. So time and time again, I, I would waffle when the, when the fighting was fiercest, spiritually speaking. And, uh, but something happened between my sophomore and junior year of college when I played baseball with Athletes in Action. Somehow God took me over there to Africa, and in that time playing, Life really became ministry. Somehow he just rooted me in those moments in the gospel to where it, I just didn't care anymore. The world can think what they will. I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm not wasting any more time. And the very next thing that God took me to do, I, I played one semester of college baseball, so don't overglorify that in your minds, uh, for Vanderbilt. And this was also at the time before Vanderbilt was any good. Um, this was in the late 90s, and I, uh, I, this was my junior year, 1998, and I um, show up, uh, and the fall semester begins, and it's my first week on the team, and I'm meeting a, a whole new group of guys I don't know. Matter of fact, we, uh, for the first week, you don't even have coaches. It's just the, the, the captain's lead practice, and we're working out early in the mornings, and then we are um, uh, practicing in the afternoon, working out again after practice. You're all day with these guys. And I'm the new guy, and they're being nice, they're being cordial, I'm getting to know them, everything's going fine. And a full week of practice goes by, and I'm kind of just trying to sniff out who here might be a brother in Christ. Like, that's at the front of my mind. And I quickly sniffed out, I think, maybe one guy. One guy, he just doesn't say much. One guy. The rest of them, it was just obvious by the way they spoke, uh, by the way they uh, lived, by the jokes they laughed at, by the nature of their conversation, the things they reveled in and talked about, that they were far from God. And the first Friday night, we finished that first week of practice, and one of them, who would go on to be a, um, a pitcher in the big leagues, he said to me, hey, Vaughn, you want to come out with us tonight? And I kind of knew what that meant, but I said, yeah. He said, I'll come by and pick you up at 7. We're going to find us some beer and some women. And I went back to my dorm, and I thought, well, here we go. I'm the one guy that here nobody knows, and tonight's kind of one of those nights. Like, i got to be who Christ called me to be. Not a do-gooder, not one that's holier now, but one who loves Jesus and is turned from a life of sin to follow him because he is better. And this was tough, man. I prayed uh, for a couple hours before this guy came and grabbed me, and we went out that night. And, uh, and for the first time that I can remember definitively having a life, I was able to love those guys, be with them, um, enjoy fellowship, but not participate in those things that I felt like were clearly disobedient and offensive to God that I knew in my spirit were wrong. And the guys didn't understand, imagine that. I understand. I got it quickly. What's wrong with you? Oh, man, you're not one of those. Oh, you're not a religious. Oh, fine. And what happened? Some gentle slander, some jokes around my back. All right, well, you can be the driver. Okay, well, you, you'll be that guy. We need another one of those. And you just kind of start this, well, I'm going to stick out like a sore thumb. I don't love that, never been comfortable with that, but that's what God has called me to do. Now, that was uncomfortable for a few weeks. You eventually love guys enough, you win them over, make friendships, be a part of it. But I, hey, I was other than, unashamedly, I was different. 
Can I tell you, interestingly enough, by the grace of God, and I, I was no great evangelist, I wasn't the Apostle Paul amidst the church in Macedonia, it was nothing like that. I was hanging on to Jesus. And um, you know that guy that invited me out that night, went to the bigs, had a 10-year pitching career, ended up getting saved in the minor leagues. Ended up becoming, and was until last year, the chaplain of the Vanderbilt baseball team the last six years. Almost every time he sees me, he falls all over himself apologizing to me for how he treated me. He didn't even treat me bad. He was just lost. And he's going, I was such a fool. I was so darkened. I mean, he just falls all over himself. And he just, he can't hardly speak about what God has done with him out crying and hugging me and won't leave me alone. <laughs> Another young man, a freshman from uh, Chicago that I got to be friends with, second baseman, Kyle Flubacher, had a chance to lead him to Christ. He spoke at my wedding. You know what he said? He said, I had never met anyone. I had met religious people. I had never met anyone that had a relationship with Christ. Can I tell you? It just doesn't matter what they think of you. I'm so, I would love a lot of do-overs, but I'm so thankful for that semester that by the strength of Christ, a, a, a measure of obedience, surrender, God impacted eternity eternity that's what he wants to do in and through our lives when we're willing to suffer with Christ when we're being misunderstood maligned who cares he is worth it the gospel is worth it the joy is ours we're the ones who've been awakened who know the truth we empathize with those in darkness we love them and we stand as those willing to be maligned and misunderstood that by our suffering, maybe some might be saved. Well, he goes on to say, they will get, those who malign you, they'll give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. Don't fear man. It's one of the themes of your whole Bible. Don't fear man, fear God. All right, don't, don't, don't cower to them. Be empathetic. They're going to stand before a judge one day who they will, who they will shudder before in that which they scoff at now. Be firm, be bold, be courageous. Verse 6, for this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. Now the context here is those who are dead in Christ. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. There were those in the first century, they were literally, Nero was pouring oil on them, lighting them flame, and there were torches that lit his garden parties. They suffered in the flesh, and they received the glory due them in Christ. That's why the gospel is preached. That's why you stand firm, because some will be saved. Uh, Paul says in Romans 8, the sufferings that you will encounter now, they're not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be yours when Christ is revealed. Those saints that died in Peter's day and those saints that die in our day. What is it? What's Jesus' word? To depart from the body is to be alive with Christ. To the thief on the cross, you'll be with me today in paradise. That's what's in view. Read this week, Marco Polo, you know, the swimming game guy. Uh, he was actually a 12th century Italian dude. All right, figured that out this week. Uh, he was an explorer. He was a merchant, and he got to go all over, 13th century, rather. He got to go all over the, um, he got to go to the Far East because of his family's trade, and uh, all over the uh, uh, Chang dynasty in, in uh, China, uh, Kublai Khan's Mongolian Empire, and he saw things that you couldn't imagine uh, that were just all together. The, the animals were all together different. The terrain, the foods, the vegetation and flowers. And so he came back after 20 years, comes back, and he's just, rife with stories. He's just trying to explain the brilliance, and they can, everybody in Italy considered his stories to be just fantastic tall tales. And at first they were humored by them, but they came to think he was crazy. And by the end of his life, they came to think some, something worse. They came to think he was just making it up uh, to create bitterness in them. And so churchmen went to him in his deathbed and said, we want to give you a chance to recant of your lies for the sake of your soul. How terrible. And Marco Polo looked at them like he knew something they didn't know. And on his deathbed, he said, I, I won't recant of anything I've said. The truth is, I haven't shared with you a half of what I saw. And such is the ministry of Christ. 
we don't know but foretaste and glimpses. He hadn't shared a half of what he knows. And yet it's worth our lives to stand and suffer for glory is ours forever. Hey, Martin Luther, this is the watchword of the Protestant Reformation that we're willing to stand. At the Diet of Worms, 1521, um, uh, under Emperor Charles Pope Leo, when they uh, pinned him down and said, you must recant of this salvation by grace through faith alone. And he said in his speech, he said, can't do it. Here I stand on the word of God. Uh, My conscience is bound by what the scriptures say is true. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God, amen. And we stand. And people won't understand. We'll be maligned. And yet, it is our privilege and our stewardship to keep into the ways of Christ in such a way. For verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. From the moment Christ was raised to sit at the right hand of the Father, the church age began. This is the end. The imminent coming of Christ is any moment, any day. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He's saying, don't, don't, don't merely uh, be lost in immorality and rebellion against God and idolatry, but further be sober-minded and self-controlled. Like, don't just get distracted. This is, this is our, what hits close to home for me and for us, is that we would just fall into a life of ease and comfort and then just enjoy this world, peaceably so, and try not to get in anybody's way and, and pursue long life in the wealth of things. Sober-minded, self-controlled, you've been called not merely to survive and enjoy. You've been called to suffer for the sake of Christ. Get, get about the kingdom That's what it means when it says, for the sake of your prayers. I've learned that if I'm not uh, praying, um, well, let me me say this way. If I'm not dreaming kingdom dreams, if I'm not urgently pursuing the mission of Christ, if I'm not engaged in the Great Commission, then frankly, I won't need to pray that much. Because I won't be doing anything that really requires the spirit and power of God. I'm just kind of nudging around, taking care of business, knocking out my to-do list, providing for the family. Where I get where I really recognize my weakness, my need, is when I'm in the trenches. When the arrows start flying from the enemy because I'm on mission for Christ. Now that's what we're called to do. Self-control is to not abandon the mission for ease. Sober-minded is realizing what's at stake. The souls of man, the word of God, all eternity for the sake of your prayers. I'm always convicted. Any text like this that I'm not, I'm not the prayer that I want to be. But today that reflects something in my life. I'm not on mission the way I need to be. Because if I were, I would. If I were placing myself in the midst of the conflict where the souls of man were at stake, I would have to be on my knees. Be sober-minded. Be self-controlled. Don't forsake it. Satan will love to distract you, keep you from deployment. It's nice to be home. But we've been called to arm ourselves with the intention of suffering that the gospel go forth. Above all, gives us three things. This is where we're closing. Love one another earnestly, Show hospitality without grumbling and serve one another with your gifts. Three one another's. The New Testament has 154 of them. Well, here's three right here. Here's the good news. You're to suffer? Yes. We're to deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow Jesus? Yes. But we are not to suffer alone. You and I are are placed into a body, the body of Christ, by the Holy Spirit. It has an expression, the church. We're actually meant to suffer together. So we're told, hey, love one another. You come on Sunday mornings, you get out of the trenches for a moment, you come and relieve yourself in worship, you're meant to be loved on. In spite of your sin, in spite of the way you might have offended, by the way, that's what it means to love, covering a multitude of sins. That doesn't mean some weird theology about God will somehow overlook some of your sins because you're loving. That's false theology, it's not true. It's not what the text says either. God overlooks your sin because you're hidden in Christ, because of the way he loved, not because of the way you love. 
But in response to what he did for us, we love others. What the text is actually saying is, in light of their sin, even though we are here amidst people that are uh, unrighteous at times and, and uh, short with us at times and offend us at times, we still love them. Why? What does that remind you of? The gospel. Because that's precisely how Christ has loved us who have offended him. So we will love even in the face of a multitude of sins. We will come here and love one another. And that will not be merely balm to our own souls in the midst of wartime mentality, but it will be a demonstration to a world of the tangible love of Christ. It's meant to be winsome. It's meant to be so attractive. They're meant to long for a selfless, uh, authentic love like they see amidst believers. And then it says show hospitality without grumbling, and that without grumbling is key. Hospitality is love with skin on it. We're meant to actually, it's meant to cost us something. We open our homes, we open our wallets, we give of our resources, we show hospitality. Now, it's not merely because we should. Ah, this guy's got, hey, babe, we got to give up another night. So-and-so's in need. I wish they'd get their junk together. That's called grumbling. (laughs) We are to say, what does this remind us of? The gospel. Christ taking on flesh for us in rebellion to God. We can joyfully return the favor to our king by loving someone else the way we've first been loved. We show hospitality without grumbling. And we serve one another. It says, each of you has been given a gift. Now, this is some, this is some baseline um, New Testament theology, but I, I think maybe it gets lost in the wash somewhere. Do you know that the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life, if you're saved, if you're a new Christian in Christ, certainly he awakens you to the truth of the gospel, certainly. He drew you to Christ in an undeniable way. And when you received Christ by faith, sincere and saving faith, he placed you in the body of Christ, and he placed Christ in you by taking up residence in you. Literally, the Holy Spirit alive in you. That's a deposit that he gave you that guarantees your salvation so you don't have to live in fear of losing what Christ earned on your behalf. And he gifted you. He gave you a gift, a spiritual spiritual gift, a divine enablement that allows you in a supernatural way to minister to other believers and even to a world that knows not the power of the gospel, but to minister in a way that will edify others and, and yourself at the same time. First Corinthians 14. And you may be going, wait, what? What are the gifts? I have no idea what my gift is. And this certainly warrants another sermon. Uh, and I will get around to that. But I will tell you this, I did a brief study just there's at least 12 gifts mentioned in the New Testament. Some would say as many as 28. You go, why isn't it clear? Well, there's natural gifts and spiritual gifts and, and miraculous gifts and, and, um, and non-miraculous. And, and 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 depending on how you categorize uh, gifts and callings and talents, depending on how you categorize it, there's some way between one or two dozen gifts and five different passages that were given. But I'll tell you how you find your gift. You look around the needs of the body and you start serving and, and, and I won't have to get to know you for 10 years to start telling you what you get. I'll watch you and others will watch you and you'll find where your joy is in serving and others will comment on what a blessing it is and you'll begin to figure out where God has divinely enabled you to serve. On our staff here at Harvest, um, um, Tony is gifted. Now you're thinking in music. He's okay in music. What he's really gifted in is mercy. Tony, that's right. If you're having a bad day, you call Tony. He, that brother will come sit with you. He, his heart will break about whatever's going on in your life that hurts. He'll hurt worse than you hurt. He can't help himself. He's got a gift of mercy. He bears your burdens with you. Sweet Tiffany, she's a, she's a servant. Got a gift in service. She sees things and she is compelled to serve in little ways, seeking no attention for herself. Can't get your life together? You go sit down with Kevin Furness for one hour and he'll organize your life from now until the day you die. <laughs> He's a gifted administrator. You got Pace McKee. He's a leader. He's a visionary. He sees where to go and how to get there. You got Bill Garner. He is a shepherd. 
He cares about the flock. He ministers as one who's been wounded. He massages truth into those wounds in a loving, gracious fashion. He's a shepherd. I hope that in, I hope that I'm correct that God's made me a teacher. I take truth and clarify it so that we can be grown by it. It's deeply edifying for me to serve in that way. If you need to laugh, you go see Jamie. He's the gift of sarcasm. I don't know where it's, it's in there somewhere. I haven't found it yet, but I know it's there because he's got the gift. But look, that's just our staff. And I can see, work with that. like we got, like the gears would really grind if we were just heavy in one gift. Like, no, it takes the gifts to minister effectively. Well, can I tell you what? Ephesians 4 says it's not merely meant to be a staff endeavor. You're the body of Christ, meant to be the ministry. In fact, our main prerogative is equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And if you're going, well, I don't know, how am I supposed to use my gift? Look at that, I mean, we seem like we have it covered. No, no, listen to me. There's a, we have over 1,600 members at Harvest Church. That little staff I just talked about, which is a portion of our staff, cannot possibly truly minister and disciple to the needs of 1,600 plus people. Now, can we as a body? Absolutely. And so not everyone's gift will be prominently used on Sunday morning. Lots of little ways we can use each other and lean on each other and serve one another. But when a church starts, usually we start with 30 people. And everyone's gifts were very publicly presented. We needed them all. And those the teachers and the administrators and the leaders and those that were hospitable and those that were prayers. And I mean, we had all the gifts and, and it was just the sweet fellowship and everyone knew exactly how to serve one another. And, the, and we ate together and, and did life together. And you know what? It was so sweet that other folks wanted to be a part of it. Can you believe that? And that was to our delight. And they joined and they joined and it became a little bit harder to kind of know everybody in the room. And once you cross about 100 people sociologically, you're no longer in a small group. I think it's probably somewhere way below that, but, so, but in the way the human mind thinks, and at that point, something really dangerous happens. People start saying, I will come and receive the benefit of the fellowship without giving anything to it. Welcome to large and mega church America, where thousands come as spectators to receive a benefit, but to participate in no way and to give nothing. Now, that is, you can't possibly obey the command right here. If that's your mentality, if that's your position, if you're a spectator, not a participant, how are, you're not loving, by the way, <laughs> it's a little too much here to go deep into, but that love, the ectenos for love means stretch yourself out in love for a brother. It's talking about in the body of Christ, uh, to show hospitality without grumbling, to find your gift and use it for the edification of this body. You just can't do it as a spectator. There's a danger to that for you, for us, and for the witness of the gospel. We're not called to be spectators. We're called to be participants. So very quickly, practically, how? Well, we want to get you in a small group. I don't want to leave you questioning this. We have discipleship communities. We do it via, through our Sunday school classes, through our small groups, which are basically home groups. And in those groups, 12 to 30 people, guess what? You're going to know each other. You have a chance to love each other. Have a chance to bear one another's burdens. Have a chance to be offended and still love. Be excited about that. All right, that's, that's all part. Like, you're going to get the chance to do what we're commanded to do, which is edifying to us and the body, which is how we grow together in the gospel, leaving no one behind, and how the world looks at us and longs for that love and are invited into the fellowship. And as we get bigger, we got to keep getting smaller. Graham Spell, gifted administrator, gifted leader, gifted teacher. He may have all of them. No, nobody has all of them. But Graham's really a gifted leader. He's the guy that wants to meet with you, help you get into a discipleship community. We want you to be obedient, and we need you. We can't be the church that Christ loves and is building and calls his bride unless we're all participating in it. Email Graham. Say, put me in, coach. I need to love. I need to show hospitality. I need to serve. I need to figure out what my gifts are. We got to get you somewhere where you're needed. And you're needed here. And here, I'll close with this. Here's the real danger that sets in if you don't do it. If you just sit and if you just stay on the outskirts of the camp, here's what will happen. Numbers 11 will happen. Probably don't need to say anything else. I know we all have Numbers 11 memorized. 
Numbers 11 is when Israel leaves Mount Sinai. Uh, after a year, they're receiving the law, and now God's bringing them to the promised land. Numbers 11 is why they get screwed up in following chapters and end up in a 40-year journey, and a whole generation's got to die, and a new generation's going to be obedient to Joshua. And here's what happens. God says, I'm going to give you a pillar of cloud by uh, day and fire by night. Uh, it's going to be hot in the day, cold at night. You're going to have to trust me. There's going to be no food or water, but I'm going to rain down manna from heaven. And they're going to have to go out on this difficult journey. Many are going to go, man, we should just go back to Egypt where we were slaves, but at least they gave us three squares a day. No, I don't want to go back to Egypt. Do you want to go back to Egypt? No, I want to get out on this great adventure. But on this great adventure, we're going to suffer and we're going to have to trust Christ. And those who drew near the tabernacle, the presence of God, was always right in the center. Man, they were on the great adventure. But those on the outskirts who wanted to be a part of the community without any skin in the game, you know what happened? They started complaining. It became about them. Their needs weren't being met the way they wanted them to. And they griped and they complained. And it said the Lord saw their complaining. You can read it for yourself in Numbers 11. And he was furious. And he even brought fire down to consume the outskirts of the camp. I told you it's dangerous to be in the outskirts. Consumed it. If you're not willing to draw near, he doesn't want you in his camp. Don't linger on the outskirts. We need you serving. Last thing it says, I think I've said the last thing three times, forgive me. It does say, uh, whoever speaks, speak oracles of God. Who serve, serve by the strength of God. You could take all the gifts and put them in the category of speaking and serving. It's, it's Mary and Martha. It's two sisters gifted totally differently. One serves all the time. One sits, listens, talks, teaches, worships. Let me ask you this question. If Jesus were going to be at your house tonight, Jesus Christ glorified body coming to dinner your house tonight 7 p.m get your mind around that is your inclination to think oh my gosh i've got to get home and clean the house (laughs) or is your inclination oh my goodness i've got to think of everything i want to ask jesus by the way don't start shaming yourself or anyone else it's okay how many marthas do we have How many Marys? Okay, I got about 10% Marthas, 10% Marys, and 80% on the outskirts. (laughs) Hey, it's okay. God's divinely enabled you to participate in this body for his glory and to suffer well together for the cause of Christ. Amen? Father, let us be your body and your bride and your building and exactly what that means. Let us not get distracted pursue our own pleasures in our own kingdom. Let us not forsake the glorious calling to suffer for Christ amidst a body who knows and loves. Lord, part of the reason we don't suffer well is because we don't be in community well. The big church at Harvest, there's a danger that we could linger on the outskirts and we could be gripers and complainers and we could live in your ire and miss out on the great adventure of drawing near to the presence of God and what you're doing here to exalt the name of Christ, and to push forth the gospel to the ends of the earth. Let us be joyful, privileged participants, and let us hunker down together. and Love one another. We'll cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable without grumbling. And according to the gifts you've given us, to serve one another. Be glorified in it, Lord Jesus. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.